Alex is in a virtual world. I am. You guys ready for this? This is the reveal. <laughs> How are you doing, Troy? Brian? <laughs> oh, God. Can we deconstruct this a bit? He's got fake glasses on. You don't need the glasses, Alex. The other thing is he's elected to do really short hair with his avatar and a trim beard. And he's actually a few pounds lighter, interestingly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was flattering. Honestly, I feel that working in this thing is better than working out of this thing. And that is a revelation. I am very excited to talk about it because I feel it's going to be an important way we work at some point. Do you have a body? Are you wearing pants? You always go there, Troy. I'm What's not going anywhere. I'm just wondering. <laughs> well, you, you literally went there. Any new technology, the first thing that people go to is, no. what's the porn angle? Brian, great observation, but I'm wondering, is the body mapped? We're dealing with a floating head. Yeah, there's no body. That's intentional. Come on. Yeah. What's up? Because these devices, the immediate knee-jerk reaction is like Beavis and Butthead, <laughs> porn. It's not these devices. It's part of being human. What, pants? Sexuality. <laughs> That is true. Sexual desire for Alex. All right, let's get into the episode because... I think we need to talk about this. I honestly, I think this is really cool that we're now like doing this vision thing, but like Alex bobbing around on the side is disconcerting. I'm already you should just get used to it, Troy. You know those demos that Microsoft used to do like in the early 2000s about this is the future of computing? Well, we've been talking about that for a while and kind of wondering when it would happen. And I got to tell you, after spending probably 20, 30 hours in this thing by now, Street? It is. <laughs> yeah, I've slept in it. No, like it has passed the bar that makes it inherently useful as a computing device. And if Apple's an ecosystem, what they need to do is provide the best device in each category. And this is not a category. It's not a category. I don't want to play VR in this. Sure, I'm looking through screens and the pass through is grainy. But the second I pay attention to what's on the screen, what's on the windows floating around me, all of that goes away and I'm just like in this space where I'm immersed in this interface and it's really profound. And that doesn't mean that I'm saying I wish we would all wear this walking around because that's super dystopian. The same way I wish we didn't put kids in front of iPads or couples weren't like both watching their phones in bed. But as a computing platform, it's past the threshold and the press around it has mostly been negative. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they felt bamboozled in the first 30-minute demo or whatever. But this is, I was ready to send this back. And I would say they've cracked it. I've been designing interfaces for 30 years. And I've tried every single headset since the first Oculus Kickstarter. And this is just the quality, this integration with the software, all of that is just like they crossed the line where it's become truly useful to me. And I would not give this away. I don't know what that line was, like the quality of the screens, the interface, it's all the things working together. But I feel I like... you said you had buyer's remorse, Alex. I had reverse buyer's remorse. I bought it. When I first bought it, I was like, fuck, why did I buy this? It's stupid. <laughs> and I'm just going to buy this so I can experience what it's like to look at screens that are such high resolution. 
And the more I used it, and then I started just putting stuff around the walls, and I have a calendar here, and I have you guys floating in front of my window, and I can... Do you have a Zen in? A virtual Zen? No, I don't have a Zen, but I, I am on Adderall, if that helps. I... <laughs> Just wake up, snort some Adderall, put on the goggles. <laughs> that's what it. That's what's going on right now. It's, it's not the virtual bobbing head. It's his, that he's on Adderall. That's why he's this it's intense. It's the lines of Adderall. I have ADHD, so Adderall actually calms me down. There's a lot of joking around about how stupid those avatars look, and they look absolutely stupid. And there's a lot of talk about how stupid the eyeballs look. They look absolutely stupid. Yes, it is a bit heavy, but if you can get used to it, it's fine. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff like Steve Jobs would have never launched this as if everybody now f was talking to the ghost of Steve Jobs, you know, Kara Swisher, all of them were like, no, Steve Jobs would never launch this. Steve Jobs would be like blown away by this shit. You're obviously a proponent of this. So let's go through, I think, some of the, the sort of early criticisms are, and then I would love to get into why you think they're misplaced. I think the yeah. top one that I read that I sort of agree with and I think those who are not in technology businesses, but are in tech-enabled businesses, which are most of the people, right? That they want to know when this thing's going to be mainstream. Most of what I've read, and I've not experienced it, but what I've seen, it tells me, nah, I don't have to worry about this for at least a year, probably multiple years, because it's not going to be mainstream, at least for the foreseeable future. It's a good question. I think we sometimes frame any new Apple device as the iPhone killer or the next platform that will take over like the iPhone. I'm not sure Apple even needs that because like I said, Apple's values around its ecosystem. The fact that there are phones is built upon the fact that there are Macs and the watches connected to phones. And so I don't even know if this needs to become mainstream now. The, the Mac is 40 years old this year. And the iPhone, you could say, was a successor to the Mac that took 30 years to build. And also, like, people are so shocked that Apple's building a $4,000 device. They sell a $3,000 screen. They sell, like, $200 keyboards. And it's yeah. just... They sell, like, $10,000 bottle service at the F1. So, I don't know. Right. Why not? Well, but, but, I mean, this is a very Apple product. And I think that it is definitely a professional or prosumer product. I use it for work. I found it, like... I mean, I like to get close to screens and I now work remotely and I, I managed to zoom out a Zoom call where somebody was sharing their screen and look at the fucking pixels on that thing. And so for me, right now it's a professional device. I wouldn't recommend anybody buy it. Neither do I particularly want the future where everybody's just wearing goggles staring at each other. That's not what I want. But if you frame it like that in your head, like that's the future we need and it's not there yet. Yes, maybe that takes 30 years. It's probably like three or four minor miracles away from being glasses like you or Troy are wearing right now. Like batteries need to change, laws of optics need to be bent somehow, computing power needs to be minimized. Mm. You know, like my only w way of reviewing this is, is it useful today within certain use cases? And yes, it is more useful than buying a fancy screen, right? And I would buy two fancy screens usually. It is a fully portable device. It is an entertainment device. And the more I've used it, the less stupid I feel about having spent $4,000 Well, okay, that's the other factor I want to get into. Let's get into it. It's the dork factor, right? And you look totally don't like get, a dork. Do not, don't get defensive, Alex. Nobody's going to no, get no, shoved I, in I a never, locker. Don't worry. I never, denied, I never denied that you look like a dork. You <laughs> Absolutely. There good. is a dork factor that some would say, I would say, right? Like we've all seen the photos of the people. And what I wonder 
is whether that matters, right? Whether, and it's not, you know, just like snarky people, I don't think. There is a leap that takes place and it's not the, it's not the same as wearing AirPods. Those look goofy, but this is, you remember the first time you see someone wearing this thing in the Starbucks. Or those guys driving Teslas and stuff like that. A lot of people are pushing what you can do with it and I think they're having fun with it. The entire interface of this thing, the entire software is not built for walking around a Starbucks. It is built for sitting around in an apartment or sitting in an office and organizing your space around you. And it just turns the whatever room you're in into basically a giant desktop. Once you start walking around, it actually like it's not intended for that. But what walking around allows you to do is really kind of the edges of what this thing can do. And it's really impressive, right? You absolutely look like a dork. I think that's why people are pretty quick to review it badly because they don't want to be part of the dorks that are going to get like their do you, do you know, wedgies. It on? No, I just, it is such an interesting use case. I will sit down at my desk and put it on and have my screens where I can look around and see the different things and I can take a screenshot and like with my fingers, drop it into a messaging room. I have one of my partners screen shared here. He sees my screen. We can both t- talk about, I can. How many of your part co-workers have them? Just one. And it, it kind of feels like I want to buy everyone one, but it's expensive. But so the thing about the dork factor is that it's absolutely not important because it doesn't matter because it passes a threshold of How usefulness. How much of your day do you use it, your work day? What percentage of your work day? I tried to do two hours yesterday. Okay, imagine this. We had a massive storm here. A 80-foot oak tree fell on power lines, and there were live in, power lines. In the virtual world you, or the real one? In the real world. You like okay? live in a video game. There's always like hauling going on. Oh, I, There's some kind of Cal- wildlife California, man. <laughs> loose. So I'm running entirely on batteries and satellite internet. I'm totally preppered up. I have like... You can just get an apartment in a city. You know this, right? Yeah, I know. I put on this headset and I'm having live conversations with people while my house is out of power. And I, I told myself, I'll spend a couple of hours in here, you know, until I get tired, I don't want to get a headache. I spent the whole eight hours of my workday. I took it off for lunch. I went for a walk and I, then I put it back on. And Did your kid drop it, come in and see it? When he came home, like I showed him how it worked because I, I like to explain things to him. The eyes are just weird, you know, and when you wear it, actually, it's hard for people to see that you see through. It's dorky, and it's definitely not something I would wear outside. I will wear it on an airplane, though. So the other thing is, in your experience, is this a VR device or an AR device mostly? Or do you it's like very much an AR device? And okay. I was so here's the thing. Even though that's why it's so much better than the Meta version. Yes, yes, it's very strange because the real world is actually rendered at lower resolution than the Windows. And then the interface. Of course they made it that way. (laughs) No, no, but I think part of it is like the amount of work that those cameras are doing for me to look around and it feels real. Because you know what what cameras do, they wash out the brightness, they need to adjust, all that stuff. It's handled incredibly well. When I look at my hands, it really feels like I'm just looking through maybe sunglasses. But the interface itself is nearly indiscernible from reality. It feels like a movie where something's floating in front of me. And when you're in here, you spend most of the time looking at interface. The background kind of fades away, but the background is really important because it gives you a sense of space. It does make you feel so isolated. And whenever you want, you can turn this thing into the best VR headset in the world. Like right now, I'm turning the dial and you're sitting in White Sands Desert. There's the wind blowing. It's incredible. 
But no, I think that's the threshold it passed. It has made wearing this thing not feel disorienting. It's crazy. Yeah. Will you get one for your partner? No, she's not interested. She's smart. She's not interested, but I, I, I showed her a pass-through of what I was seeing. No women she, are going to wear this for so long. She understood the appeal. Like, I think... I've yet I to feel, see a woman wear one. Have you? Like, I've never... Of all the, the Twitter The tech reporters, yeah. I've seen like some this. tech reporters. Okay, Joanna, yeah, because she was from the Wall Street Journal, because she was reviewing it. But I don't I know. I went to the Apple store, the main Apple store in Manhattan yesterday, and they've, interestingly, they've divided the store up into a quarter of the store is a Vision Pro demo area with elegant leather and wooden kind of seating and and as the Zeiss machine or whatever it is to take the prescription off your, your eyeglasses and yeah. find the right inserts for the headset. And it was completely full. The nice thing about it is you could go there at four in the morning and get fitted and get a demo. It's open 24 hours and it was completely packed, but they've made a huge, I mean, just think about the floor space. They've made a huge, huge commitment to this product. Amazing. I mean, the, the most speculative Mac product or Apple product I've ever had, Alex, I mean, I've had all their, pretty much every product since the beginning, but the Newton was the one that was, to me, the most speculative use of technology and clearly was a long-term arc to the phone, but in its first incarnation was a terrible device. Yeah, the handwriting I mean, recognition was terrible. Right. It was heavy. The battery was bad. The screen was yeah. bad. Was somebody then speaking about how Steve Jobs would never release this? All right, let's like go it, beyond. It really, they just like fucking. Kind of but it's annoying. It's annoying. People use the ghost yeah. of Steve Jobs. Here, here's what I'm going to say, Troy. I was expecting this to be that that I a device that I could enjoy as a technology enthusiast. As wow, look at all these kind of chips stuck together to make this appear. A certain way, and I, like I said, I've I spent a lot of money trying VR headsets. I'm in gaming. I've never used one for more than like an hour and a half, and I hardly ever go back to them because I actually don't enjoy that experience. They've cracked it, and I actually think those short demos are not the way to show this. Unfortunately, I think what people need to do to really get into this is actually spend time with it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this: If you were still in your position at Airbnb. What would you be telling your teams that you had to focus on? Or would you be like, yeah, don't focus on this stuff. It's too speculative. I would say like, absolutely. This is not useful for Airbnb right now. What it is, it is useful for me as a, as a video game studio where I'm, I'm doing work and I have conversations on one side and I'm looking at screens and I'm talking to my team. I think it's a very nice laptop enhancement, right? It connects pretty seamlessly to my MacBook. So I have my whole MacBook screen. I can virtually resize it. And honestly, it is better than any screen I have ever owned. I mean, I don't think people understand that. Watching a movie in this is better than going to an IMAX cinema. And so I would say as a workstation uh, and as a kind of addition to your workstation, it's really powerful. I don't think Airbnb needs an app for it. The iPad app will convert pretty seamlessly. Very smart, right? I've already bought a bunch of iPad apps that they can use to do stuff, including this Riverside app. This is not a Vision OS app. It's an iPad app. Runs seamlessly. The webcam's replaced with my weird avatar face. My window, I have my time, the weather forecast. I see my emails here. It's great as a workstation. I think there are so many tools that you could build for this that I would pay a lot of money for, like a virtual whiteboarding tool where we can share multiple screens together, like a virtual office system, any type of 3D stuff, a way to walk 
like genuinely walk around a house or space, you know, anybody that's kind of checking a space or doing a, a review of a space or something like that records everything. You can leave tags and notes around and understands the spatial components of it. There's so many new mm-hmm. interfaces that you could build for this that it's crazy. But, but wouldn't wouldn't know. that say like it, for Airbnb, shouldn't you be able to walk through the the home before you stay there? Like, are we that far off? We're not that far off. I think there's a lot of things you can do with depth. I think that those would be distractions. Imagine it like a giant desktop. Like it can do the 3D stuff. And that's very cool when you have 3D floating in front of you. But at its base, it's so useful just as a way to have different apps around. So I can have the map here on the right and I can have the Airbnb app on the left and I can plan. Now, what I cannot do yet is do that with somebody virtually sitting next to me that's also wearing one, right? The space sharing isn't isn't quite done yet. But, you know, if you're in media specifically, I mean, I think not too hard to convert your, your iPad app to something like that. But sports is going to be crazy. I think people are going to spend like front row seats courtside at the Lakers or whatever you want. That's possible yeah. here. And I know? think I think what's going to be unique with this is true personalization. Because one of the problems with watching sports is you get one singular angle. And now they're like changing that a little bit with options. But you're going to be able to be courtside and just be able to focus on Caitlin Clark if, if you're a Caitlin Clark fanatic and all that that you can't do with just one broadcast, I would guess. Yeah. All right. By the way, we're going to be joined by Rafat Ali very shortly. Rafat, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Hey, hey. How are you? Hey, Rafat. I'm sorry. I was just showing these guys the thing. I was planning to get back to reality by the time you got here, but I guess I'm stuck here now. So the good news is I don't know what your real face looks like. So for me, this is your face forever. It looks a lot like that, but just a little worse. So we were just doing, <laughs> Rafa, we were, we were just doing, Alex has obviously been using the Vision Pro. He's a resident early adopter. Troy's, Troy's not far behind, and I, I lagged the pack by two or three years. I'm a little ways behind. Rafa. little ways. I, just, I don't want to rush it. Let me ask you this. What do you think? Because I was asking Alex after using this, and, and Alex was the head of design at Airbnb. If he keeps resizing windows while we're talking, I'm literally getting <laughs> I, off the I've already tuned it out. I've adapted. Anyway, so Robin, your CEO, Skift, Skift is focused on the, the travel industry. Do you have any early thoughts about whether this matters for the travel, travel. industry? I think where it's headed towards does matter in the selling of travel, 100%, which is ambient information that you can access as you are discovering things, whether it's in the pre-buying phase of travel or while you're traveling. Certainly, I can see a lot of implications while you're traveling, it becomes less douchebaggy versus the big thing that is today. And so enhanced information that I'm doing as I'm traveling certainly seems to be a very one thing I'm fascinated by is if like real time translation like actual real time translation does happen between two humans the two are speaking in two different languages it feels like this type of form factor will is moving towards enabling that so yes i do see implications there whether it's going to help in like oh i can walk through a hotel before i book through a hotel though that seems less of a important use case then. Oh, good. That's the one I brought up. It's actually the media capture has been made quite affordable because you can take spatial video with the iPhone 15 Pro. And even though it's not like a full, you know, walk through virtual world where you're flying through, it gives you a sense of depth. And just 
taking a, a video of myself running through the house, you know, walking through the house, gave me such a better sense of space. Now, I just don't know if people will put this on to do that sort of research. I think especially travel planning, you want to open an iPad or a laptop and the family sits around it. I think this is a different type of device, but definitely a space for anybody who's working remotely, I think. Did you say you ran through the house with it on? I walked through the house, sorry. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think you should run. No, you shouldn't. Rafa, we happy to have you on to talk a little bit about, we were just talking about the future, but let's talk about the past. Because it's media, let's talk about the past. Because I think what we're seeing right now, this has been a long time coming of what's happening with a lot of the pullbacks in the media industry. And you've always been very vocal about it. How do you sum it up? Because there's a lot of like the quote unquote doom and gloom out there. And of course, there's lots of pockets of the media industry that are still growing. But what's happening right now with all of these layoffs and cutbacks and closures? Two things. One, I have a grand theory of, of what's happening with media. And I also don't have a grand theory of media. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So one, the grand theory that I've sort of wrapping my head around, really, I'm going to say in the last six years to a month, probably over 2023, I would say, primarily, is the cultural obsolescence of media, mainstream. And we will, I'll continue to sort of emphasize mainstream consumer Western media, because that's the lens that today we're looking most of the media analysis from. Yeah. And that's where most of the doom and gloom is. One of the things I've been saying, people have been trying to try analyze it as a business problem. We've been, you and I have been doing this for 20, 25 years of the business challenges mm-hmm. of, the, of the media industry. We've also been analyzing it from a product challenge of like, oh, if only the product market fit gets right, media will be fine. I just don't think anybody, for the world that it is today, you can argue how, how screwed up the world is. We can all debate whether that's true or, or not true, or, or this is bad or this is good. The reality is, as the world is today, whatever media is offering, whatever it's offering, mainstream media, nobody wants it. There's something Sarah, Sarah Fisher just put out, I'm going to say 10 minutes ago, whatever, half an hour ago on Axios, that nobody's engaged with political news for this cycle. Yeah. And imagine the same thing four, five, six years ago, whenever it was when Trump was first running, and the engagement was, was very high, particularly when Trump was first running. The outrage meter has run out. Nobody is engaged now. So that's my theory of culturally, mainstream media is obsolete. Nobody wants it. You can argue all they want is confirmation bias. Okay, what they don't want is what what the mainstream media Mm. is offering. So that's my, I think it's not even doom and gloom. It's sort of past that, which is like, it's obsolete. Nobody wants it. But are you just talking about the news part of, of media? Yeah, yeah, very much news media is what I'm talking about. That's a big category. When we say news, it's not only the news capital N, right? There's a a lot of lifestyle stuff in there, right? Correct. Daily output of mainstream media today. Hmm. Now, are you you seeing that as fatigue? Are you seeing that as fragmentation or platform shift? I mean, are you talking about a movement away from television news or traditional or established media brands like I'm just trying to like maybe you could because I, I I feel what you're saying Rafat and I think it's a it's interesting that we are sort of in some ways I don't know maybe like we're just kind of tired of it I mean this this will sound totally ridiculous and like we're, we're in a post news world like it just is 
And it's all of what you said, by the way. I'm not saying I fully formed every part of my thesis, but right. elements of this are playing out as we're we're doing. Like you guys talked about CNN in the last podcast I was listening to. I think uh, this whole thing about whether now the news is that they're thinking about putting it online and charging for it. Under no circumstance, however they think about the product, is anybody going to pay for CNN today in this world as a structure today? Just whatever they do. And so, yeah, so that's my general thesis on it. I think part of it is fatigue. Part of it is, I, I did say this in one of the tweets that I did, which is it feels like the world is playing 4D chess and the journalists are sort of checkers at this point. Have you thought much about, Rafat, um, what we lose from that or what we gain? Oh, tons of, tons of loss has happened in terms of I mean, all the stuff. I don't have to repeat this to you. All the stuff that everybody else has been saying. Hmm. But what I'm saying... I'm not making moral judgment on whether this is good or bad. I'm saying this is the phase we're in and media does not know how to exist in today's world. That's my general sense. So, and I also said this, New York Times, everybody cites New York Times as, as like, oh, it's an exception. Today's doing well. My you have a pretty, pretty interesting outsider take on this, yeah. Which is that in 10 years, it will be a lot less relevant than it is today. For now, it's banking on inertia. Some of these outliers are essentially have a longer cycle of obsolete coming in the future. So, hey, does it mean that I don't have the stats in hand, but we're still spending more time than ever consuming media, Rafat? So, what's taking up that time? Are we just getting, are we becoming less informed? Are we becoming stupider? Well, I mean, this is interesting. Your podcast is an example of of the new forms of media that people are really influenced by. And you and I were talking about this the last time we met. Like The majority of my time now from a media consumption perspective is now spent on YouTube. I'm not on Instagram, I'm not a TikTok, so I'm sort of an anomaly that way. You said something to me that I thought was kind of interesting. You said that you were listening to the All In podcast and something they said changed your perspective about media. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been brought up in the in the usual sort of liberal mainstream media tradition as a journalist covering the business of media over the last 20, 25 years. As somebody who came to the U.S., did his master's in journalism in the U.S. and covered and worshipped people in the mainstream media for my whole life. I just don't think we were ever exposed to the other side in a non-confrontational way. The other side, meaning the other, like a different political just perspectives pers or yeah. any, just any kind of perspective. Yeah, just any type of perspective. And for all the, you can. In other words, there was a single kind of dominant narrative. I don't, I, it's not narrative though. I just think groups of people, they see the same thing and they perceive it differently. Right. And like when you see any, and I think it's most fraught with politics, but the same thing can happen and two different groups of people can interpret it wildly differently based on their value system. And I think it's hard to talk about the quote-unquote media as like a singular entity, but I think what you're getting at, Rafat, is there is a cultural milieu in which this profession broadly exists within, and it's really difficult, just like it is within a, a lot of different closed little areas, to put yourself in the other people's shoes and to see things from other perspectives. And I don't think that the media has done a great job of doing that. I go back to the explainerism. I understand explainers, but it's really arrogant, right? It's really arrogant to be like, no, you're wrong. This is what it really is. 
And that just has really, I think, turned off a large group of people because it speaks to a lack of curiosity about the world and understanding that other people don't share the exact same viewpoint and experiences as you do as a certain group of people are very dominant in media, right? Yeah. So the, again, all the podcasts, we can snark about who, who the people are on there, et cetera, et cetera. I happen to, there are two of us on this podcast who share a, a former boss on it. But I think there's something about podcasts, something, the audio coming in your ear in sort of the intimate fashion that does make you listen more than reading something. And I think that was the first pushback that I listened to and I said, huh, and uh, that I should be more critical of everything that's presented to us. Why not? I've always held that as a, as a principle, but if, as you said, Brian, if the cultural milieu sort of puts you in a, in yeah. a mainstream opinion, it's very hard to then critically question anything. And I think that's, that's my general disillusionment yeah. with liberal mainstream media, if you will. And I mean liberal not in like a totally political sense. I mean it in, in terms of mainstreamness of the people that get employed by it. And so it's a journey that I've had for the last year, year and a half, really. The conservative right-wing media was easy to discard because it was just too shrill. And this left-based, or this other mainstream media is an ongoing cycle. So I don't have full theories on it. That said, coming back to your question about what is working, you guys have talked about it, obviously, a lot, which is in vertical communities, a lot of stuff is working. Yeah. Do you think that the organizing principle of a media brand, you know, there was that, Brian, you had circulated a, a document or no, an article today from The Guardian that was about Mark Thompson's insistence on a certain type of coverage or a certain way of covering the war in Gaza and a point of view around how to cover Hamas and what the Israelis are doing. I think a lot of people inside of CNN were critical of that point of view. The idea of a media brand is that you coalesce a number of, I think, distinct, but different, different opinions coalesce into kind of one unified point of view that's represented by a media brand. That's governed by a hierarchy inside of a inside of a media company. Do you think that that structure is under pressure or outdated? Is that a question for me? Sure, yeah, of course. I think so. I mean, look, when I said... I mean, but you run a media brand, Rafat. Do, yeah. you, do you tell your editorial team what to write? No. Do you tell That's them what not to write? Sometimes. If it's like, oh, don't quote the same freaking expert 10 times over in a story, but like the mild, not in the, in the sense that, that you're saying. What if, what if someone is like a like a total environmental activist and is just hell bent on cruise ships like being eradicated from the face of the earth? Well, good news is we cover the, we we don't cover as much cruises, so okay, I can easily <laughs> scared that question. Yeah, I'm very anti cruise um, ships. I think the B two B media does exist in a little bit of a parallel yeah. world, right? And I, I'm happy for it, honestly. Like how, so happy. Here. How does this all track though with the fact that I would say? The most, well, one of the most successful news outlets right now is conservative, and it feels like a good way of kind of hanging on for as long as possible is to be aligned to an extreme side rather than having kind of this open mindedness of showing different sides. I, I can't, I mean, CNN's been talking about doing that forever, showing both sides. There's been 
apps that came out during that. And I, I don't know if you, know, you were talking about the culture not really being interested in that stuff anymore. Is you kind of turn news into a vertical. Like Fox is like the vertical of conservative thinking. And it, it sounds like news yeah. is going to get more focused into whatever extreme so that they, yeah. they snatch up that audience, right? Yeah, and news, the way you get like depth is in ideology, particularly when it comes to politics. Like if you're not going to get breath, you got to go for depth, right? Yeah, and I think you were bringing up a point, Troy, on it seems like in general, we are more informed than we've ever been. And this is the biggest irony that I'm still trying to sort of wrap my head around. For people who want to be informed... You got to do a lot of work, though. I feel incredibly well informed, but it takes a lot of work. It takes, it takes a lot of work. This is why the analysis that I listen to on YouTube when there's podcasts and stuff is so fascinating because I'm able to get in-depth expertise from people that I would never get in traditional media in general. Isn't it less work, though, than it used to be to get there? It feels like less work to me. I mean, it feels like media is so... Like YouTube is such a resource. Newsletters are such a resource. Podcasts. I feel like my feed every day, I just need to consume it and sit down and consume it. I mean, there's undeniable fragmentation of sources. I mean, I think a lot of people can just like get their worldview from the New York Times and that's like an option. And, and people like my parents just get it's all the Wall Street Journal plus Fox News, and that like takes care of everything. <laughs> well, YouTube is very good at pushing new stuff. It's incredibly, incredible machine. It it really is. I don't I don't know TikTok, so I can't say it on what that does. But in terms of YouTube, it is brilliant. I don't have to subscribe to anything. I don't have to click the subscribe button. If I have watched it, it will figure out how to send me stuff. And I would say nine times out of ten, I'm gonna click on it. In general, you know, it's a similar vibe in terms of the power of the algorithm to feed you with very little input and very little work. So it customizes really quickly. The difference is on the nature of content on YouTube versus TikTok. I mean, it's the length, right? The length, the length, and the type of people. I would just say that YouTube is way more enthusiast. That's the kind of content that I really value on YouTube. That, like, a twenty-minute deconstruction of a audio streamer or something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Wah-wah. <laughs> Your example wasn't very thrilling. <laughs> I was hoping for something a little bit snazzier than that. How do you end up applying that, Rafa, to your own business, though, right? I mean, you're talking about like spending more time on, on YouTube and the weaknesses, but then, like as you said, B2B operates in this weird parallel universe, and anytime consumer media hits a trough... It's like, well, B2B is still doing good because B2B yeah. is kind of, I don't want to say like, you update the playbooks, but they're kind of like set. And yeah, execution is hard in anything, but it's not like consumer media where you're stepping on rakes left and right. It's just, I think consumer media is just infinitely harder to figure out than B2B. Yeah, yeah there's a reason why certainly I'm not in it. I think that some of the, some of the things do have an effect. For instance, erosion of email newsletter. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat day-to-day, -day, figuring out delivery and privacy issues and because email was the was and is the biggest feeder of B2B media forever. Before email ever became cool or I don't know if it's cool or not cool these days. But we do have we do see some effects. If in general, for instance, last year traffic fell for every major news category, media category, as you know, it does 
we do see, we did see that in our traffic as well. So there's some erosion that effect that does happen in general. Platforms, Facebook is not important, not important for B2B anymore anyway. So we do see some effects of it, but the direct connection that you build with your audience and provide daily utility value through your newsletter, podcast, etc., all the stuff that you're doing, Ryan, in a larger way we're doing with uh, with Skift. And for us, it's how do you catch them at the top of the funnel, then bring them down the funnel, offer them research, bring them down the funnel, offer them events, bring them further down the funnel, offering them marketing services, further down the funnel, advisory services. So you sort of, everybody wants a flywheel in their pitch deck, and sort of we figured out a flywheel after 12 years of running Skift, which is I can move you through the whole funnel and that deepens the relationship with a defined sense of audience. And how do I become a bigger and bigger part of your working day is what our goal is. I think that's where the best of business media or B2B media and information, I'm not just kind of calling it media, but allied services to media. Yeah, so, and I think I think consumer has to adopt some of that with B two B because in B two B media, a lot of times how you make money is kind of different than your content. It's yeah. necessary but insufficient. You can publish some great content, but if you're just going to make money off of like putting display ads next to that content, you're not going to go very far in B two B. You got to do a matchmaking, buy and sell side. The issue is surely is that consumer, you just need like crazy scale to make anything like that start paying, right? You need to be Mr. Beast and you make chocolates or Beast Con or whatever you want to do. But tell, or tell you me, cater to extremely rich people. That is usually sure. I mean, what was the watch watch website? Udinky. Airmail yeah. is like, Air, Airmail's yeah. apparently getting bought for fifty million dollars. I mean, it's not. Exactly. Yeah, I was looking at there. Like they they probably did fifteen million and and a path to profitability. And that's like four times, three times revenue. Rafa, tell me, you run a, a website in, in 2024. <laughs> Can you run us through what that's like and, and how important the website is to that flywheel? Because when you mention your business, there's so many layers to it. But yeah. if I think of Skift, I think of the website. Is the website losing importance? Is it a different world than when you started? No, I don't think it's losing or gaining. I think it's part of the mix. I just, I don't think in terms of if somebody says Skift is a site, that is certainly one way of looking at it, but it's not the totality of services that we offer. I would guess the majority, if numerically the majority of the people do come to the website, but the, where we make the money is not web units, if you will. And I mean, if it's the, the top of a funnel at least, are you anxious about the transformation of the web, things like AI ingesting all that data and changing the economics there? Certainly from our archives have been ingested by Chad GPT, Bard, whatever you want to call it. In fact, Washington Post leaked some stuff on, on what are the sites, top sites that Google Bard was trained on. I think this was early on last year sometime. And they, you could put in your website and see what rank were you in the order of hierarchy of the sites. And turns out Skift was like number 500. And one, I took it as a compliment, like, Mm-hmm. Why would five? Well, why would be the five hundred most important site on the web in a small, tiny like? It's like when the barbarians come to your house five hundredth as they're raping and pillaging your community. <laughs> well, but today, at least AI is a structure today, and maybe this is lack of my visualization can do the reporting and the analysis in a forward-looking manner 
that journalists in B2B do. I totally agree with that, but I think the risk maybe sits higher up the funnel where people don't even get to the site because the answer that they wanted is condensed into a single line, right? That's and, right. and search engines become answer engines and then your stuff is just, oh yeah, I just needed to know that so I don't get sucked into the rest of the context and the information. And maybe my brain is just happy with that result, yeah. That's that's where we see a lot of it. Affects, it, it has impact on the funnel for sure. Little perfunctory stuff gets answered. I have a whole theory about this. Maybe I'll save it for the next episode. But the um, <laughs> teaser. Yeah, actually, once you try to get deep with a perplexity or ChatGPT, it's really dissatisfying. Actually. Oh, I just started using perplexity. Now it's dissatisfying. I'm late there. No, it's it's great if you want to know like where Napoleon was exiled. It's not good if you want to figure out what the trends are in travel beyond. Yeah. It was fine for getting a fettuccine Alfredo recipe. It's good for that, yeah. yeah. It's good for knowing, like, this is a Netflix show, show what, what is the consensus reviews? And it gives me a pretty quick thing. But anything beyond that is pretty terrible. You were early in experimenting with AI. Is this just like a small, the, the ask gift? And because you have unique data sets, which I assume yeah. you shut off yeah. from. So we've, we've trained it off. So. Ask Gift, yeah, which is our AI chatbot, has it changed how people work, how interact with Skift? No. Well, like, let's just step back. What is it exactly for? The so audience? it's it's a it's a chatbot that's trained on all of our corpus of content over the last twelve years of existence, news, research, events, transcripts, SEC filings, or the public companies that we cover. So ten Ks and ten Qs. These are quarterly and annual reports. We haven't done everything because then it becomes too unwieldy. And we continue to think of sort of other public sources of information that we can train it on or private sources if we can get access to it. And so to go back to something that you said, if you have a question about the travel industry, what's the looking at Airbnbs? Give me the last five quarters of, of marketing spend, sales and marketing spend from Airbnb. And chances are it will answer, our, our chatbot will answer it to satisfactory enough versus going to 20 stories and doing a search. So that's an example of, can we move our users, a thesis is, can we move our, our users from just a container-based relationship with us, we create this story, we create this research, you create this event, it's a package that we, we're giving them, to a query-based relationship. Hmm. Add to it. I, I wouldn't say one will replace the other, but can we add the query-based relationship with our users? And we think that at least in the chatbot form, that's possible. Has it changed since we launched it in May? No. We, we get about a few hundred queries a day from our user base on AskGift. I was expecting more. It would yield results and we would continue to iterate and it will become, it won't replace, but it will become a new way of how people interact with Skift. It just hasn't become that. It's a new it's, behavior, right? It's, it takes a while for people to adjust to asking the computer something like that rather than going through the normal path, I think, even if it's useful. Yeah, and I'm not even sure the, it's tougher to get the behavior to move from an aggregate chat position like a ChatGPT down to the Skiff chatbot. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah, I, it I think that's the hard part. You know what I think is going on broadly? I will just kind of lay the r rough outline for where I think this interesting shift is. And it's really hard for us to all see what the next phase of the web looks like. But I think you're starting to see the outline of it a little bit. And I see, I think you see it with things like 
the perplexity chatbot as a reminder perplexity basically the way that i think about it it connects web in the web index to an llm so it's always current and it basically goes out does a, an index query like google and then it processes it through the llm to give you a natural language response that's totally personalized chat gpt does it although interestingly the the chat the llm at at chat gpt is better but the index connection is not better and then we're starting to see it being built into the browser with arc and so the model the, the way that i think about the chain the big change in the web is you used to use a browser to go out and get to seek and now the browser brings it back to you and that's a fundamental structural kind of reversal so that i would use my browser largely chrome integrated with search because they're both the same company query something off of the navigation bar you get a list of links you go out get information right that's the move of the internet and everything was monetized at the endpoints and at the gate from google now what's happening is i query something and it brings the information back to my browser and when when pushed on this the thoughtful people at the what's the is it called the browser company alex yes. yeah at yeah. arc yeah. they're like well we clearly this approach of sucking knowledge or or sort of semantic context from the perimeter to the center is going to hurt somebody right like you, there's no opportunity to to pay for a journalist in that model because there's no advertising on those endpoints mm-hmm. they're like well we haven't worked that part of it out yet and so we're in this innovation phase where it's america's actually yeah. really good at it it's totally reckless but some some new equilibrium eventually emerges right it's just it was interesting to me as i broke it down the way i think about it and the way it starts to get resolved is your browser's going to be a place for personalized information aggregation very different than it used to be it's a place where stuff gets brought to you that videos and you can see in the examples videos do fine here because they can suck the videos out of youtube but video players can preserve advertising can be preserved in the video mm-hmm. extraction process then there's free content and free content people will make one way or the other like a lot of like world knowledge or just th- and lots of stuff whether it's people conversing in forums or people like hobbyists writing stuff up or people contributing to wikipedia there's a whole territory of free that will exist as free whether there's economic incentives or not and then there's a tier of stuff that you really want which is researched and has journalistic enterprise and has insight and someone's carefully crafted it and that's where it gets tough and i think that you will either go out and get that or there will be meters where if that stuff is abstracted or sucked into the 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 LLM effectively that there's some kind of compensation model and we're starting to yeah. see that now with the deals that open AI are coming. I mean, just so I, I think be. there has to be this sort of central bank function or this meter function that that they perform but it's really really good to try to understand the shape of the new world from the perspective of the browser. The browser is kind of ground zero here. and i would just encourage everyone to to take a look at what arc is trying to do because it shows a very different world that goes beyond bard i think the next shape of the internet is about it coming to you as about about you going out on it 
Yes. I believe that the thing to really look out for, I think one of the most important releases is not going to be the next GPT or the next Arc browser. It's going to be what Apple does in iOS 18 because it's going to be at the OS layer that this stuff just takes over. We're talking now about the browser kind of dismantling kind of the construct of the of the web because people will just be able to get information like that. I think with iOS 18, Apple starts doing that to the entire internet via its phone. And that is when even Google potentially gets hurt. That's when a lot of this stuff just happens on device or transparently behind the scenes and you just get the answers you want. And I think we'll notice that actually for just day-to-day shit that you need where you need to know like the score or what celebrity did what, you'll just be asking Siri. And I expect that to be like this year or next. And that will have major repercussions potentially. With that. Yeah. And I think that is the essential challenge for for a lot of these publishers is how they operate in that world. I had a this is I guess a somewhat of a humble brag, but I, I I got interviewed for a New Yorker story about the collapse of the media business. I like that my brand is synonymous <laughs> with collapse. As one of the lone survivors? <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's like I'm the I'm the person walking away from the plane crash. It was great. Claire Malone, can't wait. Claire, if you're listening, can't wait for the article. Please include my quotes and, and link to the rebooting. <laughs> but It's a hustle. It is a hustle. I just started a membership program. I'm going to Congratulations. That looks that great. I haven't fully read it, but I want to read. <laughs> Good. Well, we're running credit cards actually. After Do we the get show. discounts on this podcast? Yeah, there's no discounts. This is a premium product. Do you see oh. like discounts happening at Louis Vuitton? No. Well, I just spent all my money on this Vision Pro, so I need that's I need your some fault. Help. I got an email and then I, I was on the phone with a fact checker for like 25 minutes who was going over my quotes. And then not only just the quotes, like the context around the quotes, and then the fact checker is like, well, this isn't directly about what you, but it's about like what you were talking about. And I think this part is a little bit unclear. And I just wanted to run it by you because it didn't, wasn't clear to me. And I was like, honestly, this is just sort of basic stuff. If you were to rewind 15 years. And I was like, this is amazing. This is like an artisanal. And I wonder how that and if that is going to exist. I mean, during the interview, it was like, what happens to these kinds of of places because I think we would lose something without that. I understand that for publications and those in the publishing industry who are just saying, well, people won't trust what is regurgitated from LLMs through AI. I'm sorry, it's going to get way better. And so I don't know if you'd want to, if that's a hill you want to die on, but I do wonder how this kind of, or if this just goes away, are the fact checkers going to be just gone? Well, they're, they're gone from most other media except probably New Yorker, right? I know. I hope they, I, and this is where I think, you know, where media goes, where it becomes much, there are a group that becomes much more artisanal. I just think a lot of the other parts of the media industry, and obviously the middle is getting wiped away, that's the fate of, and, and there's going to be a lot of individuals, there's going to be a lot of niche plays, B2B will be fine. Thank God, Rafid, right? But it's going to be really difficult for, for general interest unless you get into that, that very artisanal where you have very rich people who are going to be paying for your tote bag. Yeah, well, that's why 
whether it's Semaphore or Axios or Punchbowl or Puck or whatever those are. I can't tell one from the other, by the way. There should be some blind taste. <laughs> so wait, are you, you, I don't want to say you're a hater because your your Twitter persona is different than your real world persona. No, he's nice in the real world. I though. know, no, I, I feel like we're exposing like him it. on this podcast. I like it, you're a spiky <laughs> Twitter, Twitter user, it's good. I shy away from bites, I don't like that stuff. What models outside of B2B and super niche and like, yes, I love what Sean did at Industry Dive is doing and like Endeavor and all the B2B stuff. Let's leave aside that. What are you actually find promising out there in the media landscape? And please be specific. Outside of the rebooting, that's B2B. Long pause. <laughs> I can't wait for the answer, Rafat. Because I don't have an answer. <laughs> Shit. I would say, I, again, this- Is it the messenger? <laughs> yeah, nothing in modern modern Western world that I find that interesting, that excited about from a media perspective. Let me say this. I think what Semaphore is trying to do, which is different, different, is that it's trying to come at it from a global perspective that's than what everybody else has done. So I'll give them credit for that. I think it's very much a Justin thing because of his background that they're doing Similar for Africa, and they just announced something else internationally that I forget, maybe last week or something. Yeah, they're doing something with the, we were talking about this in the chat with OpenAI. I haven't gotten too deep into it. Well, guys, I mean, what, what they're doing with OpenAI is aggregating everybody else's news, but through the steady hands of a journalist. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll do a long list of stories from around the world, stories that they wouldn't have covered themselves, and they'll cite the sources, but an open AI chat or some LLM is summarizing stories. So in a sense, it's an age old thing. First of all, it's sponsored by Microsoft and I presume by, yeah, by Microsoft. So it's really an ad product. Okay. Secondly, it's aggregation on their site of stories that, yeah. that can be kind of summarized by them, but not written by them. I think it's kind of brilliant because they don't have to play defense like everyone else with the LLMs. No, it's a great move. I love it. I think it's really smart. It will last, as Troy is saying, it will last as long as Microsoft's sponsorship lasts. Yeah. And and then it will go away. So I do think from that perspective, I just don't find the product very interesting. Like It's not appealing to me. I find it boring. What do you do when you get up in the morning, Rafa? Like, Do you read the New York Times? Not lately. It's becoming less and less of a... Of but, or do you go through some newsletters? I do get business news, interestingly. I do get a lot from LinkedIn. I do. I know we... Thank we, you. We Thank you for standing it. up for LinkedIn. Speak truth to power. It's really sad. Well, in, in our world, it does matter. It's Maybe, in me- I don't know if it matters in media, but in the business, in the real business sector. Okay. This- so you're having a cup of tea, you wake up, and the first thing you do is you go, I got to get my LinkedIn this morning. Fire it up. Put on the Vision Pro, get on LinkedIn. How's LinkedIn on that, by the way, Alex? Amazing. Twitter and LinkedIn, and then email. And this is after I've sent the... So, yeah, the first part of the morning is send, just sending kids to school, but after that. <laughs> okay, but are, do you pay for a lot of media? Yes, I, I'm a subscriber to New York Times, Financial Times, Bloomberg, Was a Washington Post, Let It Lapse. So, yeah, quite a... I think, and even a few more. So, a lot of, of, a lot of established media brands are getting checks from you. Well, FT and Bloomberg are established, but I think they're in a, in a little, little bit different category because of the business nature of it. Yeah, right. And it, so they, are, they seem to be doing very well, both of them. Obviously, Bloomberg, for slightly different reasons, which is the big machine that they have. But Financial Times seems to be doing well. Journal seems to be doing well. 
well enough on the at least the business news part or Dow Jones seems to be doing well in the business news part of it. I uh, secretly think the journal's getting better and more interesting. Under the new editor or just yeah, under the new editor okay. she's doing a good job i think the ft is a great it's my favorite publication out there these yeah days. i think in terms of if you want to put an example of a modern media company that is a great product i would say financial times is probably among the top of the and list. it still has the like charming british elements to it like they have a gardening columnist i find that i find that incredibly charming i mean the guy's like writing about petunias and stuff i mean he's he's truly one of the one of the last ones. They have people like named like Robin Wigglesworth and stuff. It's great. Highly recommend it. I mean, like finance and sports feel very similar to me where you can have these properties. There's always something going on. It's very specific, targets a specific type of audience. Financial Times keeps popping up. That is news, but it's very much financial news, which seems to be not immune, no, no, no. but in but like... Much more than that. That's why it's so great. The FT Weekend's a monster. I mean, they, the luxury luxury spending supports a lot of these publications. But like, sure. I, I mean, I the audience like, is also wealthy, right? Yeah, I mean, they got us the how to spend it, which they changed to like they try to make it something else, which is weird. They they turned it into an acronym, didn't they? Yeah, but it was during the like a lot of the activism and stuff. They're like, well, this doesn't look how really to spend good. it seems sort of appropriately gauche. It's yeah, it was supposed to be gauche, and they're like, no, it's not about money. It's about how to like spend your energy and your en- and your time and your car. And it's like, no, it's about luxury watches, cars. Just don't overthink it. It's rich people. But I think the FT has actually done a really good job of. I think one of their secret strengths is the fact that their articles are short. I mean, they go long, but otherwise they just go really short. The ones on like the front, Great like, point. it's just 450 words. And with the times, I mean, Axios got that right. Those articles do not need to be that long. Uh, Daxo took it right. Bloomberg also, if you, the, the majority of their stuff is pretty short. And then they have deep dives and stuff. Except for Matt Levine, who will just go on forever and ever. Yeah. Yeah, but that's one out of a million things. Yeah, he he does go on, but he's he's a pretty funny writer, though. Mm-hmm. Very astute writer. It's uh, just, I, do you think it's just, I mean, back to your point, where, which where you started, where it, it's just a defunct medium, maybe. It's really hard to find the time to read anything long when you're exposed to so many things. I, I find like we might be seeing the end of the long form in general, right, everywhere. Like, yeah, I mean, if I can... Not to make it personal, Alex, but... I, you have tremendous hostility for articles. For that words. Have some, uh, he's anti-word. Look. <laughs> he will not rest until we're all wearing these goggles and the words are gone. I mean, maybe it's because I'm, I'm come from the interface design space and I understand like what friction looks like. I think long words and long articles and all this kind of fanfare was built so that you would have more space to put ads around them. And that is no longer... It's a word conspiracy. The advertiser invested, (laughs) invented. But I'm sorry, I can take any article, I can take any article that you will send me running through something that summarizes of 100%. 100%. You can't summarize an article I write. Who was behind this guy? He just like popped up? Who? What do we know about him? You lose all the nuance in a summary. I get it. I'm a big fan of the long read, sitting down with a book and experiencing that, like fiction, nonfiction, whatever. But when I'm reading an article, I'm just getting informed enough so that I can live my day and make decisions. And that is usually four or five things. The amount of filler that that we put into stuff. I do it myself. Honestly, I think most people just need the Captivate Elevator Network. Like pretty much all the news, like... 80% of people. Need. I mean, 80, 90%, right? 
This is why, like, wealthy people, right, people that we used to work with, used to have people that read the newspapers and gave them clippings. Well, in 2024, everybody just wants the clippings. <laughs> Thank you very much. I mean, I know it's sad, but... Yeah. I was thinking that, does does Elon Musk have a, like, foreign affairs advisor? Does he, I mean, I would guess if you have that much money, does someone, like, meet with him and brief him, or does he just go straight off the vibes and what he's seen? Like, I think you know the answer, very well the answer to that one, based on his his public persona. Like, why does he just hire someone, like, an ex-State Department's deep state person, or he just wouldn't trust them, I guess? I don't know. No, he reads what... Dogedog420 writes on Twitter and says, interesting, and retweets this. But do you think he does the same with food? Like, do you think he eats microwave lasagna? Yeah, like, I don't Or does he it. have a chef? Oh, he has a chef. Like, Jamie yeah. Diamond doesn't just pop off with what he read. He just has someone who briefs him and stuff, just like any other powerful person. Yeah, a lot of these guys have, re- like, deep, deep research coming from a group of people, including our friends on the All In podcast. I mean, there's there's researchers, yeah. I guess we should have expected, but turns out they have teams of each of the four have teams of people working on what they then say at at the weekly podcast. Yeah. Troy, do you have that? Yeah. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's that's what we need to take us to the next level. All right. Well, you know, we need to take us to the next level is we need to put this on YouTube, guys, and we need to have you get off the stupid Vision Pro. Uh, I don't think we need to go on YouTube. That's I think Brian, that's a miss. I have to humbly say that's a total really a hundred percent. Yeah, it's total miss. Huge audience. You have to spruce up where you're sitting. That's for sure. Well, that's why. That's why you don't want to do it. I gotta yeah, I gotta dress up this. I think this should be the first one, man. We have a cool guest. I'm in VR. All right, fine. We can do it on video. (laughs) I think it's the spare room. So people underestimate Reddit and YouTube. As like the two giants of of the of the media consumption world, that we continue to underestimate. Here, here. So, Rafat, just to wind this down. First of all, we we appreciate you coming on very much, and I love your perspective. I I think it's really provocative. Related, you have children, and we all have children. Except have for children. you, Brent. You want to <laughs> give someone advice on their future in media? What do you tell them? Yeah. So, my view has changed on this in the last six, eight months. I can't with a straight face say that they should go into journalism or journalism school. I went to it and sort of made a non-traditional career. I just don't know if the struggle is worth it when there's so many other opportunities in the world Hmm. to focus on. So certainly my kid, who's the older one is nine, younger one is four. So I hope they don't want to go into media. He wants to become a Trillionaire, that's his his goal. The elder one wants to become very rich. He, he already wants to be a YouTube creator, by the way. That's what he wants his career I mean, to be. Isn't it amazing that basically the new job that kids want is a media job? You've managed to do it, guys. Look at you. Every single kid wants to be in media now. Well, it's also, it's like, do you advise someone to go into journalism, capital J, in some ways? And that, you know, obviously... I've been meaning to write about this. Like the profession needs to completely remake itself. It needs to rip up the J school model, which has been outdated forever, and just burn it and start all over again. I'm talking to Columbia at the end of the month. <laughs> we are here sitting about the doom and gloom of media while we're successful in it ourselves. Yeah. Can you imagine what the kids in school are going through? The journalism kids? I hear from a lot of them. I talked to a woman who had. She had a joint MBA, JD, and was going into journalism. And I was like, oh, 
really? I'm like, but I don't know. I try to give a balanced perspective because I think that there are areas in which you can do a lot of really interesting things. And I think people are going into media that aren't going into the capital J journalism. And I think that's just going to, that's just part of it. It's going to change. I mean, we're seeing the shift to expert. So if anyone really wanted to go in, I would say get expertise in something. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Expertise is probably what I would 100% recommend. But in terms of generally going into journalism to do good in the world, I mean, certainly those days are 100% over. I can't say that in in the Western world. I'm sure there are pockets in the world, in other parts of the world, where it's thriving in various ways, but certainly in the in the world that we sit in today. At least in countries where you don't have good public access media. I would say England or Australia or places like that still have decent public access media, which is still a pretty traditional path for some folks. Yeah. But yeah. I come from India, now the most populous country in the world, desperately needs journalism. It just has no structure under today's society to support it or for the media that exists today to, to actually do journalism that makes a difference. Do you think it's fun to watch a cricket game? He's so into cricket. He'll get up at three o'clock in the morning and watch cricket. Well, that's be four years to four years. I'm a four-year to four-year fan. Like, give, give, I, I'm a four-year to four-year fan of anything. Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> but it's every four years that I do wake up at like three o'clock in the night, wherever the cricket match is, Australia or India, whatever it is. I watched my first live cricket match this summer on Shelter Island. There's a game every year. Was it a 2020 or like a full-on? I don't know. T20. It's probably 20. I, if it was here, it's probably like a short, shorter version of the game. You don't have Alex, a you're like for the aggressively anti-sport, but you know cricket terminology. I'm not anti-sport. I think it's boring to talk about it. <laughs> I like enjoying note. it. <laughs> well, just to close up, do we have anything else, Brian? No, on that's the docket? it. No, we gotta we gotta go into good product. Well, I have a. I mean, just off the top of my head, might, Rafat might even have a point of view on it. First of all, I, I am curious, Brian, who who do you get behind in the in the Super Bowl this weekend? Oh, I don't care. You don't care. Alex, you have a thought? 49ers. I'm probably pro Chiefs because Andy Reid gave me a lot of joy when he was the Eagles head coach. It's better than that monster you have now. Nick Sirianni? Yeah, I'm not sold on that guy. Me neither. I'm gonna root for the for the 49ers. Rafad, you got a horse in this race? No, I don't know the, I don't know who's playing. Okay. So Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. They got Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey has had a, too much of a good year. He needs to be taken down a notch. Enough. You having Taylor any? Swift, she's had a better this, year. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. She deserves everything she's, she's New got. American royalty. It's oh, so it's great. A, it's, a sure, it's like a Disney movie. It's, it's awesome. awesome. She's the only mainstream media that today America can, can proudly say this is the what we're... Yeah, 100%. Yeah. More than Beatles. Yeah. It's incredible. I would say, and I have some some issues with it, but typically when a big company like a credit card company like American Express buys a technology platform, it's tough to make it work long term. And I was I thought that that American Express would ruin Resi. <laughs> it sucked to begin with, so it was hard. But I use Resi a lot. I hate Resi, and I I like it. And I like that I can also filter it by like global access via my status at American Express. Yeah. Now I see who their customer is. 
I find it useful, and they didn't they didn't destroy it. And I think Resi's become very strategic to American Express. What Troy is saying, Brian, is that it's not a, a premium economy app. Yes, it is. Okay, have you used it, Alex? You're like a product expert. Tell me this is a good product, Resi. Wait, he's resizing windows with his fingers. His hands sometimes floating disembodied. I was loading Resi on the side here. It's floating. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about Resi. I worked with those folks when I was at Airbnb. It's a fine product. Oh, okay. So now we're like, I I think Resi's. No, it's not not very good. It's not very good. In a a world where this is the type of stuff that also can be totally... When you say not very good because of, what do you mean? Is of it the UI? Yeah, or? the UI, yeah. Okay, but it, I can book a restaurant I know, but easily. you know, like it's a piece of software. The UI matters, right? Like everybody says like, but it works fine, you know, fine, it works. Does it? Every single time it's like, no, no available tables for the next like month. But that's because you don't have the right card, Brian. Just Oh, is that it? So is that the whole purpose of it? I don't know. It just doesn't, it's a simple piece of technology, it seems to me. And it works if you use OpenTable and stuff like this. And anytime someone uses Resi, I'm like, I mean, Resi's fine. I mean, the thing is like, we're talking about a good product. I'm wearing a $4,000 headset and I can, that reshapes reality. But yet booking a table is a good product, Troy. Nice. I would, listen, my other option was a Concord grape. Uh, all right. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Robin, thank you so much for being yeah, our it was a, second it guest. Was delightful. Well, I'm a fan. You guys do a great job. I think the chemistry works. The Chemistry's part. been a little off lately, but we're working on it. We're trying to find our way back. I called Alex naive. He got pissed off. And but isn't that the part of the chemistry? Like that's what yeah, yeah. I think. All that's in, what I think too. All in is similar, where you can have disagreements, but at least it's civil enough. Someone made a comment to me about Alex the other day, a banker guy. He said, he's so confident in, in what he doesn't know anything about. <laughs> it's a secret to success. Oh, speaking of that, before we go, because I need to thank Alex for that, because David Waring had written me and said, you and Troy need to let Alex talk more. I was like, okay. And then last episode, I did. And what well, we both did, David sent a note and he was like, oh my God. He said, Wow, how awesome that I emailed you and you mentioned my feedback and incorporated it into the very next show. I say this is a great example of how for the media consumer, not only is media not broken, it's all caps, amazing. You made my day. And then... Did did we make a conscious decision to do that? I didn't get that brief. (laughs) Really? I talked about it for the last episode. And then... I launched memberships today. And if you go to the rebooting.com, you can become a member of the rebooting for a mere $200 a year. I've got a whole suite We're not of doing this. benefits. Oh Alex is going to do a webinar about how you can Stop use it. Stop um, it. Bah, 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 bah. in your business. And David took out a subscription, and I am giving attribution to PVA and We're not even getting a code or anything. You're even like shilling my own time out. This is incredible. (laughs) You know, behind the the scenes on our chat, the thing is that Brian constantly plays the victim. Like Troy and I (laughs) completely abusing him. So, No, does he play the victim? I thought you were the victim. I don't think I'm the victim. No, you got all sad lately, Alex. I did? Yeah. Yeah, you got sad. You're like, if you just want me to do the tech corner, that's all I'll do. Some somebody's family dinner room, and then like I'm watching you guys awkwardly. I'm I'm trying to figure out how to exit from here. <laughs> well, thank you for joining our Thanksgiving dinner here. All right, guys. Thank you, Rafa. Appreciate. It. Thank you, guys. See you. Thank you.
Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. And if you like this podcast, I hope you do. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast that takes ratings and reviews. Always like to get those. And if you have feedback, do send me a note. My email is bmorrissey at therebooting.com. Be back next week. Hey, guys, that really worked today. Yeah, it was good. I don't love talking to your avatar. I could be honest. It bobs around too much. I don't care. But I do. It does look like you. I actually got used to it. <laughs>